Turn with me to Romans chapter 2 if you have a Bible as we continue to work our way through this series uh, called the book of Romans. We're we're slowly making our way through this very dense, uh, deep letter, and I've been thrilled by and and grateful for the way the Lord has been using it. Uh, Very thankful for that. This morning we're in a section that if I can be very candid with you, uh, I've actually dreaded coming to, just being honest with you. Whenever the word circumcision is mentioned nine times in one paragraph, that doesn't usually make for the best preaching material, but this is where we are. Um, And actually, as I got into the sermon, I I will tell you, I I was edified by it. I was edified by this passage. I was edified by the way the Spirit of God used it in my own heart. And I'm praying He does the same thing for us this morning. Uh, Last weekend, my wife and daughter and I made the trek, the drive actually from Huntsville to Kansas to Lawrence, Kansas, in order to help my my son, daughter-in-law, and their little baby, our granddaughter, move into a new place. He's going to begin a new job. Actually, has started a new job, uh, beginning a campus ministry on the campus of KU, you know, Kansas University. And of course, the, those college years are just ripe with opportunity for. Uh, evangelism and for just spiritual conversations. So we had a great time. It's a long way getting there. It's like 10 and a half hours at least. Uh, It's a bit of a soul-sucking drive, to be honest with you. You know, it's just flat everywhere until you get to certain parts of Kansas. But so at one point along the journey, I asked my wife if it was okay if we listened to a, a theology podcast. And we listened to a podcast that featured a Presbyterian, a Lutheran, um, a Baptist and an Anglican discussed the third use of the law. So you say, oh, that sounds riveting. I'll, I'm sure I'm going to get a bunch of requests for that, a link to that podcast. Uh, but we had a good discussion. And it's fascinating because you talk about the third, we talk about the law in general. We're talking about all the commands of God, you know, all the thou shouts and thou shalt nots, all the do this and don't do that. And when you talk about the third use of the law, you're talking about how does a Christian, how does the law apply to the Christian? Because we know we're not under the law. We know the law no longer condemns us. We know that Jesus fulfilled the law. So what does that mean? What do we do with all those commands in Scripture? Um, again, it was a, I thought it was a very helpful discussion. It was uh, surprisingly you know, interesting as we got into it. Now, of course, the, the simple answer to what do Christians do with the law is, well, we obey the law of Christ. So certainly that's a simple answer. Whether we feel like it or not, you know, we, we obey. Whether what it says uh, uh, resonates with us or not, we obey. But the bigger questions are, how does a Christian obey the law, God's commands? In other words, by what power? Uh, a second question is, to what end does a Christian obey the commands of God? In other words, what do we expect to gain from it or to accomplish by it? And a third question is, why does God want us to obey? As I've titled my sermon, why God cares about what we do. Why does God care about what we do? Well, that, we're going to answer all those questions through this series, but, but today we're going to answer that final question. Why does God care what we do? Why does he want us to obey his law? And we're going to look at uh, Romans chapter 2, verses 17 through 29. But let me start by reading verses 17 through 24. Here reads the word of the Lord. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God, 
and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, Paul says. Now remember, uh, this letter was written to a real church in Rome, latter half of the first century, and it was a church that was made up of Jews and Gentiles. And Gentile is just a non-Jew. And Jews and Gentiles had, for much of history, for a long history, had hated one another. There was a, there was a long history of ethnic animosity, we might say, between the two groups. Jews v- viewed Gentiles as idol-worshiping, immoral barbarians. And Gentiles viewed Jews as uptight, self-righteous legalists. One historian writes this, in order to understand Romans, we must appreciate the magnitude of the rift between Jews and Gentiles that so many bloody years of history had created. And we should remember that Jesus' own ministry, while almost entirely undertaken among Jews, did not seclude them as the in-group nor exclude Gentiles as the out-group. It set in motion a plan to heal the rift between estranged peoples. So that healing plan that Jesus set in motion was, of course, powered by the gospel, but it saw its fruition in the creation of a church where former enemies, those who at one point hated each other and had a history of hatred, loved one another and served one another and cared for one another and sacrificed for one another and gave of themselves to one another. According to Paul, there were two classes of people on the earth. There were those who were without the law, in other words, the Gentiles, who, as Pastor Adam explained so well last week, had this, they had an innate awareness of God's moral standard, yet they violated them, God's standards at every turn. So there are those without the law, and there were those who were under the law, the Jews, who had the law, but failed to obey it. The Jews had the law, God's written commands, for those who are in covenant community with him, but they were not obeying it. Even so, even though they weren't obeying it, they were looking down at the Gentiles who didn't have the law. So you had one group who had the law, but were basically ignoring it or or obeying for the wrong reasons, and another group who didn't have the law, and the ones who were disobedient were looking down on, condemning, and judging those who didn't have the law. So Paul calls them out, and he uses their superiority complex as it were, against them. Verses 19 through 21. And you, I'm going to read this uh, through 21a. I'm going to read it again. And you can substitute any pejorative word for Gentile. That's kind of the way it has to be understood. So, and if you are sure, Paul, Paul speaking to the Jews, that you yourself are a guide to the blind, the Gentile, a light to those who are in darkness, the Gentile, an instructor of the foolish, the Gentile, a teacher of children, the Gentile, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, and then you who teach others, do you not teach yourself? 
So Paul exposes his Jewish audience here. He confronts them in their self-righteousness by listing six things they're trusting in rather than Jesus. Uh, Their ethnicity, verse 17, you call yourself a Jew, didn't mean that they weren't actually Jews. This was their identity. Um, Their possession of the law, verse 17b, you rely on the law. Their identity as God's chosen, verse 17c, you boast in God. Their moral superiority, verse 18, you know his will. Their mastery of the law, you are instructed by the law, verse 18. And their teaching of the law, verse 19, you are a guide and a light. Now notice the common thread here. It's the law. They had the law. They understood the law. We could even say they mastered the law. They had had sections memorized that we can't even touch. I mean, huge passages of Scripture. They, They had mastered the law, but the law had not mastered them. In other words, they knew the law of God, but they had not been broken by it. They memorized the law, but they had not left them undone, crying out to God for salvation. They were a privileged people, having been given God's written code, but it had not transformed them. It had not brought them to a place of desperation. Instead, it left them hardened and proud, looking down their noses at those around them. Here's our first point. Simply having the truth, or even mastering the truth, will not save It will only increase a person's guilt. Do you know you can read the Bible every day and become even more hard-hearted than you were before? If you simply see in it all the ways that it applies to someone else. You know, you can come to church, so to speak, gather with God's people and become even more callous to the things of God if you just come to criticize and demand and be served. You know, you can take theology classes and you can study doctrine and uh, you can even take seminary classes and become colder toward the God whom they describe if theology is merely a means to amassing more knowledge. The great London preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote, as you read the Bible day by day, do you apply the truth to yourself? What is your motive when you read the Bible? Is it just to have a knowledge of it so you can show others how much you know and argue with them? Or are you applying the truth to yourself? Yourselves. As you read, say to yourself, this is me. Not in the heroic passages, but in the passages about sinners. What is it saying about me? Allow the scripture to search you. Otherwise, it can be very dangerous. There is a sense in which the more you know of it, the Bible, the more dangerous it is to you if you do not apply it to yourself. And how many times have we come to God's gathered assembly to be with God's people because we think what what really needs to happen is our spouse needs to hear the message or our neighbor needs to hear the message or someone in our small group needs to hear the message. We're not thinking about applying it to ourselves. It's very possible that some of you have been part of the church for years and maybe even grew up in a Christian home maybe even had a, a mom and dad who served faithfully in the church. Maybe, you've, maybe you know the truth. Maybe by your estimation, you've mastered the truth. Maybe you've taught the truth to others. But you've never come to the realization that you're a sinner. You've never been crushed 
by the burden of the law, the burden to live perfectly before God. Maybe you know more than anybody in the room, but you've never really repented and turned in faith to Jesus. If that's the case, having the truth, simply having the truth will not save you. It will only lead to greater guilt. There was a television game show on a few years ago called The Moment of Truth, um, produced by the one and only uh, Marky Mark Wahlberg. And it was a fascinating, it was really a a fascinating concept. So a contestant would be selected and then sit up on the stage in front of a live studio audience. And the contestant would be asked a series of questions while, while being hooked up to a polygraph or a lie detector test. And the thing is, and there were 21 questions. If you got all, you got to the end, which no one ever did, but if you got to the end, if you answered every question in a way that was consistent with the response, the live response to the lie detector test, you could win more and more money until you eventually won, like, I think it was a million dollars or something. Well, you know, you can imagine how this might go. Well, there was one particular episode with a, um, a hairstylist or salon manager. Her name was Lauren. And she's hooked up to the machine and she's just doing great. You know, she's answered the first one. She's up to, I don't really call the exact amount, say $150,000 or something. Um, and so she just seems to be going well. Well, the thing about the 21 questions is they get more and more controversial as you go along, more and more probing. And she's progressing quite well and she's answered some of the difficult questions. Then she's asked, have you ever been fired for a job for stealing money? She said, yes. And the lie detector test revealed, true. So she gets, she's up to whatever, $200,000. Then she answers a couple more questions. The money just keeps adding up. And then she's asked, since you've been married, have you ever had sexual relations with someone other than your husband? This is all in front of a live audience. And she answered, yes. It's a bit of a cruel, the camera, of course, goes to the face of her husband who, you know, is in, of course, you know, in great pain and grief. In fact, the whole thing at that point is kind of stomach turning. But then she's on the verge of winning. She's she's about ready to win, you know, as far as, as anybody's gone. And then she's asked, do you think you're a good person? And, you know, after all, she's, think about this, she's already admitted in front of the studio audience that she's been fired for a job for stealing. She's been unfaithful to her husband. And everybody's waiting there. The audience is on pins and needles. You know, it's just absolutely quiet in the audience. And then Lauren pauses and says, yes. The audience gasps. The lie detector reveals the response. False. Lauren leaves the show with nothing, with a marriage that presumably is in far worse shape than it was when she got there. The lie detector knows that what Lauren has claimed, she doesn't really believe, but she cannot bear to actually articulate the fact that she's not a good person. She doesn't want to go there mentally, emotionally. She cannot, on some level, she cannot bear it. If the lie detector is to be trusted, Lauren knows she's not a good person, but there's something in her that made it impossible for her to admit it, even though it would cost her everything. Now, I know people like this, not, not that have been on the game show in front of millions of people who have confessed to those things, but I know people who just cannot accept. They cannot bear the thought that they're not really good people. 
Maybe they've convinced themselves by comparing down where they say, well, yeah, but, I mean, I've never done that or I've never done that or I've never done what that person has done. Maybe they believe that they are sinners. Generally speaking, I've heard a lot of that. Oh, yeah, of course I'm a sinner, you know. But they cannot accept the fact that they are a sinner specifically. Greedy, self-centered, impatient, sinfully angry, gossipy, lustfully, whatever it is. Unless we recognize how sinful we are, unless we confess our sinfulness, unless we realize that we will never cry out to Jesus in faith for the forgiveness of sin, just knowing the truth, or even knowing it so well we can teach it, will not be enough. Now, Paul will summarize this section of verses 23 and 24. He says, You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Now that, of course, begs a very important question. How are these Jews causing the name of God to be blasphemed among the Gentiles? Well, verse 24 of Romans 2 is actually a quote from the book of Isaiah, chapter 52, verse 5 which says essentially the same thing. God says, all day long, my name is constantly being blasphemed. And the context is, ancient Israel had been taken captive for their idolatry, their disobedience, and because of that, God's name is being blasphemed among the nations. And here in Romans 2, the people of Israel are apparently recreating that same scene. So Israel's obedience was meant to point their neighbor the Gentiles among them, to the living God. But instead, by their disobedience, they were misrepresenting and mischaracterizing who God was. And and, and as such, they were blaspheming God. See, the law, which as you've heard me say, is perfect and right and true and pure. It reveals the character of God. And as God's people obey it, They showcased the perfections of their creator and redeemer, which is what Israel was not doing. So here's our second point. Our obedience to God's law is mainly for the benefit of our neighbor so that he will be pointed or she will be pointed to the goodness and mercy of God. Why does God care what we do? Have you ever asked that question? I mean, here we have the sovereign, transcendent, awesome, all-powerful God of the universe, and at present, seven-plus billion people on this planet, I mean, why does God care what any individual person does? Why does does God care at all what we do with all the people in the world? Why does God care? Why does he instruct us to obey his commands? Do we rob God of his glory? Do we diminish God's glory if we disobey? No, we know that we can't do that. Human beings don't have that Uh, ability? Does God need our obedience to boost his self-esteem? Of course not. God is fully and completely self-sufficient. Theologians talk about the aseity of God. He needs no one. Are God's feelings hurt by our disobedience? No, we saw a few weeks ago that God's emotions are active rather than passive. He cannot be made to emote against his will. Human beings do not have the power to inflict pain on God. God is a sovereign initiator of all his own emotions. Now, certainly, as those who are bought with a price, those who have been brought into God's family, God does delight in our obedience, and certainly we can grieve the Holy Spirit 
by our, by our persistent, unrepentant sin, but God is not, we don't have God over a barrel, so to speak. We can't inflict any pain on him. So why does God care what we do? The primary reason God demands our obedience to his law is so that our neighbor will get a glimpse of the perfect and welcoming nature of God. Jesus says the same thing in, in Matthew 5, 16. He says, let your light shine before others. Why? So that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Now you think, well, wait a second. I don't know. That doesn't sound right to me. Well, think about this. Have you ever, remember the situation where Jesus goes into the temple and he turns over the tables? So Jesus goes in and actually when I was an intern, uh, my, my, my first week, the senior pastor, he, he was preaching on this pastor. He said, hey, I want you to, you know, interns get all the grunt work. He said, I want you to set up some tables in front of the stage. I'm like, well, would, I know we're not having the Lord's table. It's going. He said, I'm going to go, I'm going to just turn the tables over to demonstrate this. Thought, okay, that's a little extra, but I was an intern, and so I did it. But you remember that situation? He goes in there, and just starts turning things over in the temple. Well, you know, what I had heard applied for so many years was that the way this is applied is you don't sell candy bars or T-shirts or books in the lobby of the church building has nothing to do with that at all. You know, nothing to do with that. The point is, so there, there was in the temple, the outer court was called the court of the ethne, the court of the Gentiles. And that was the only place the Gentiles could go. They couldn't go any further into the sort of the chambers of the temple, but they could go to the outer court. And in that outer court was supposed to be a place where the Gentiles were welcome to come and, and sort of experience the welcoming nature of God, so to speak. But because the Jews in that day were doing so much commerce, buying and selling and trading, there was no place for the Gentiles. They couldn't even get in to sort of you know, experience God, as it were. And so Jesus is mad about it. In fact, he's as angry as we ever see him in the Gospels. Because, he says, my, my, my temple's supposed to be a place for the nations, for, for all the nations, and yet you've turned it into a den of thieves. Our obedience to God's law. I did say mainly, it's not the only reason, but it's mainly for the good of our neighbor. This is why in, Paul's so direct with the Jewish folks in the church at Rome, by their disregard of the law, they made it very clear they had little interest in actually showing off God's character to the Gentiles among them. Now, of course, when we talk about reflecting God's character or imaging God's character, we always do so imperfectly. But our obedience to the law is supposed to give those outside of God's covenant community a category for seeing and understanding and knowing God. Our obedience is not for God's sake, although, again, he delights in the obedience of his children. Our obedience doesn't add anything to him, doesn't fill out anything that he's lacking. He doesn't need our obedience. See, Paul's already made it clear in chapter one, and remember, this is one letter the chapters and divisions, those, those came later, the chapters and verses. He's made it clear in this letter that we are justified by faith in Jesus Christ alone. The right, Romans 1.17, the righteousness of God is from faith. By faith in Jesus, we're not only declared guilt, not guilty of every sin, so we're forgiven of every sin we've committed and will commit, but we're freely given everything that Jesus earned by his obedient life and his death in our place. God's acceptance, God's approval, glory, honor, all the riches of Christ are ours because of Jesus. So what that means is that judgment day 
is done for me. So I don't have to fear judgment. In fact, I can look forward to judgment day because the final verdict has already been declared. Not guilty. My salvation is final. There's nothing I can do to add anything to it. Now, if all this is from Jesus, what do I have left? God is totally pleased with me in Jesus Christ. Not because I've been so good or because I've been so obedient, but because Jesus' obedience is credited to me by faith. Now God sees me as righteous because I am clothed with the righteousness of Christ, covered by the blood of Jesus. Now, he will discipline me as any good and loving father will, but my status with God is secure. It will never change. Nothing can separate me from the love of God in Christ. A little bit later in the same letter. So what should I be concerned about? My salvation, my status? No, my neighbor. I want to see my neighbor enjoy and experience the same benefits of God's salvation. I want to see my neighbor reconciled to God for God's glory and my neighbor's joy. Well, how do I do that? Well, in part, I live in such a way that my neighbor may have a category for understanding the living God. So let me get really practical for a minute. When we are faithful in our marriages, it reveals to a non, our non-believing neighbors the faithfulness of God. This is what Ephesians 5 is about in part. When we serve one another sacrificially, it reveals to our neighbors the sacrificial love of God who sent His own Son to die for sinners. When we forgive someone who has wronged us terribly, we are imaging the forgiveness and the mercy of God. When we protect the least of these, when we come to the aid and the protection of those who are oppressed, those who are helpless, those who are weak, preborn children, we are actually showcasing the compassion of God. When we help our neighbor, even if, even if it's just fixing something, we are showcasing the kindness of God. Our good works are for the benefit of our neighbor. We ought to have our neighbor in mind as we walk in our new status with God. Now think about this way. Again, Israel was chosen by God from all the peoples of the earth. They weren't bigger or better or stronger or more beautiful or anything else. God came to Abram and said, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Israel was supposed to be a light to the nations, a window into the person and character of God. But how would they point people to God? It would be by the way they lived. Old Testament scholar John Durham writes, they were to be a people set apart, different from all the other people, by what they were and were becoming, a display people, a showcase to the world of how being in covenant with Yahweh changes a people. But just like the Jewish folks that Jesus turns the table over in the first, uh, first century the temple, the Jews at Rome, a few years later, instead of obeying the law for the sake of their neighbor, they were disregarding their law and they were condemning their neighbor. Again, what's the point of all this? Our good works are for our neighbor. We've been given everything we need for our salvation by Jesus. There's not a thing we can do by our obedience to enhance any aspect of our salvation or in our position with God. But that doesn't mean we just hold up in our houses and do nothing. No, we serve, we give, we sacrifice, we love, we pour ourselves out for the good of our neighbor. 
And this recognition that God has already done everything in salvation frees us from the false motive, the wrong motive of obeying God for the benefit of earning points with God or paying him back or filling out anything that we believe he's left undone. He's done it all. To him be the glory. Now it must be said, pointing people to Jesus by our lifestyle does not diminish the need for the gospel to be verbally proclaimed. Our lives are not going to ultimately save anybody. It won't be our lives or our good behavior that saves anybody. It will be the gospel. The gospel is news. The gospel is an announcement. You cannot live out the gospel just like you can't live out news. But our lives ought to reflect, again, imperfectly, the mercy and the kindness and the grace and the love of God. All right, let's look at the next section. You've been waiting to get to the circumcision part. Verses 25 through 27. For circumcision indeed is a value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and, and circumcision but break the law. Let's just pause there for a minute. It's passages like these uh, that are the reason pastors like me wait 20 years to preach through the book of Romans. You know, it's like, what in the world is this? What's going on here? What's all this circumcision talk about? Well, it's it's not easy, but, but it's not impossible either. The Jews practiced circumcision. The Gentiles didn't. Circumcision was a decidedly Jewish custom. In fact, it was God who initiated the practice, you know, from the Old Testament. Uh, it was filled with meaning. And we'll, we'll talk a lot more about circumcision in the upcoming weeks. And I can see the excitement on your faces. Well, the Jews thought that because they were, they were circumcised, they were good with God and God was good with them. But Paul says very cleverly in verse 25, If you're circumcised but disregard God's law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. In other words, it's as though you were not circumcised at all. And then Paul says in verse 26, the opposite is also true. If a man is not circumcised but keeps the law, it's as though he has been circumcised in God's eyes. Paul is, here's what he's doing. He's redefining the measure of acceptance. Paul's flipping the script, as it were, when it comes to what it means for man to be right with God. It's not the physical act of circumcision, but what Paul calls the uncircumcision of the heart. In other words, neither the knowledge of God's law nor painful religious rituals will provide the righteousness that God requires. There's a theme here. I'm sure you probably noticed The more we think we've done to earn God's approval, the farther from Him we actually are. The more we think, yes, God, surely, among all the people that I know and that you know, you will accept me because I'm just better and I've done more and I've accomplished more. The two things that Jews relied on for their standing with God were the possession of the law, which we 
Again, Pastor Adam talked about last week, the fact that they had the law, they took it seriously, and their, their ethnicity or the fact that they were religiously active, specifically they were circumcised. Paul has already demolished the notion that their possession of the law would save them, and now he gets to their religious rituals, and he says, even if you've committed the painful ritual and you do not obey the law, it's the same as if you were uncircumcised. Rituals, religious rituals, will never save. Religious rituals will never render anyone right with God. Now, whatever they may be, whatever they were for them, whatever they were or they are for us, they cannot save. Now, for us, maybe the ritual we're trusting in is, maybe it's going to church. And when you think about your Christian life, your Christian existence, what it boils down to more than anything else is you go to church. That's not going to save you. Maybe it's having been baptized. We value baptism. We treasure baptism. But we also are eager to confess it will not save anyone. Maybe it's for you, it's abiding by a certain code of conduct. You know, you think, oh, I would never touch alcohol. I would never go to a certain type of R-rated movie. I would never eat certain things or whatever it is. That's not going to do it. That's not going to do it. Maybe for, for us, it, it's our denominational affiliation. I have to tell you, it really grieves me, if I can be very candid with you. I have talked to people over the last five years, when I've tried to get to the bottom of where they are with Christ, they've said to me something like, well, I've been a Baptist for 20 years or for 30 years. My friends, that doesn't mean anything before God. If you think, and I know you don't, but if you think when you stand before God, it's going to be your denomination, you're going to be in a very, very bad way. For some of us, maybe we're clinging to a certain political party, you say, you know, I supported this person. I, surely God is right with me. Or maybe it's even our doctrinal conviction. Maybe it's the theological stream that we're swimming in. None of, this, none of this will amount to anything before God if we've not trusted in the cross work of His Son. Frank Thielman warns, it is possible to know much about theology, church history, biblical exegesis, church polity, liturgical procedure, the precise meaning of various confessions of faith, and to enjoy thoroughly discussing all, all this, but be wicked in God's eyes. There is no outward ritual, there is no sacred rite that will save. Now Paul doesn't leave it there. After all that, Paul says something pretty remarkable. Look at verses 28 through 29. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not for man or from man, but from God. So to the Jewish audience, Paul says it's not the praise of man that we ought to seek, but the praise of God. Now think about that. That is a very fascinating concept. The praise of God. In every one of the Gospels, Jesus criticized the Jewish religious leaders because they sought the praise of men. And then in John's Gospel, John tells us something I think rather scandalous. He says, many even of the authorities believed in him, 
But for fear of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith. For fear they would be put out of the synagogue. Then this next sentence. For they love human praise more than praise from God. Now I say that's an interesting concept because would we ever think that any human being would receive praise from God? That the God of the universe who, who spoke the world into existence, the God who the Psalms tell us is so powerful, he rips up mature trees by the breath of his nostril, would that God actually praise a mere human? And yet Paul says here in Romans 2 that to the one who is circumcised at the heart level by the Spirit, his praise is not from man but from God. Well, all this actually fits together beautifully as you might surmise. Of course, Paul's not saying that the Almighty God would ever sing praises to a human or certainly exalt a human in worship. The word praise in Romans 2.29 is, is the Greek word epinos, which is translated praise, but in other places, commendation. In fact, it's the same Greek word Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 4 when he writes this, Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. And then he says, Then each one will receive his commendation, if you have a New International Version, it actually says praise, from God. So what in the world's going on here? Paul is confronting the idea that God's acceptance or his approval can be earned by doing religious things, but he's also saying, which is the good news in this section, he's also saying that indeed God's full acceptance, yea, even his praise, if we understand it correctly, is poured out on those who are relying only on Jesus and his finished work, the same gospel that Paul has been proclaiming since the opening verses of this letter. Here's what this means. This is our final point. The praise of God, and for those who are listening later who are not with me, I have that in, in quotation marks. The praise of God, i.e. God's commendation, is res reserved for those who are circumcised by the Spirit i.e. brought to repentant faith in Jesus. This is very important and very, very comforting. That Greek word translated praise is an expression of high evaluation. It is, it is excellent spoken of a person, object, or event. It refers to the act of conferring upon someone approval or acceptance or recognition. Here's what that means, and I'll close with this. If you're relying on anything you've done or the family you come from or any sort of relig religious ritual that you've undertaken to be right with God, not only are you in grave danger, but at this moment, the wrath of God rests on you and will be poured out in all its fullness when you're judged by Jesus. However, if you have repented of your sins, and you've trusted in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection for you, not only are you forgiven, praise God for that, you are not only blessed with all the spiritual blessings in Jesus, in Christ, God has given you the highest valuation, so to speak. He speaks over you glowing words of approval and acceptance and yes, excellence. 
He approves of you and will always approve of you because of Christ. On those days when you feel like you are just crushing it and you've been nice to everybody and you spent extra time in prayer and you read more than what was required by your daily reading schedule, you've just gone over and above. On those days when you feel like you have it all together, you are fully approved by God only because of Christ. Not because of your extra effort, not because you've killed it, none of those things. And on those days when you know you failed a thousand times, you have been sinfully angry, you have lusted, you have been uh, impatient with your kids, you have been impatient on the road, you have not done your Bible reading for the third day in a row, you've not spent any time in prayer, know this, not only if you're in Christ has he chosen you before he made the world, not only did he set his covenantal affection on you before you were born, he brought you to repentant faith in his son. And even on your worst day, he is for you in Christ and he approves of you in Christ and he loves you with an everlasting love in Christ. Regardless of what you do, his love for you will never ever change. You stand commended by God for the works of another, the benefits of which are yours and mine by faith. Let's pray.